Welcome to Art Fictions, the podcast that explores the art of stories and stories of art, where each host invites a guest to share a piece of fiction, which is then used as a prompt to discuss the ideas that drive their creative practice. I'm artist and producer Gillian Knipe, and I'll be handing over to Vanessa Murrell and her intriguing guest with somewhat macabre interests, Anna Clegg. What seems apparent in Anna's work that features on her website, obscurely called relevant-confluences.com, and from what I've seen in real life, most recently, by the way, at Half Truths, which just happens to be curated by Vanessa and runs till 30th of November 2023, is the ambiguity and ambivalence towards making a coherent image an approach shared with her chosen book. She has me thinking about images which narrate what is seen, even though what is seen is manipulated or limited to a partial view. And I connect the degradation of images with the teen characters drawn by author Dennis Cooper, where unlike, say, Catcher in the Rye, there is no clarity and there is certainly no redemption. I must give a content warning here, like the brilliant Rory Pilgrim episode with Elizabeth Fullerton, there's talk of violence, abuse and suicide. The darker side of life is barely palatable, I realise, but it is equally critical to acknowledge. Anna and Vanessa's discussion also covers topics like psychedelics, obsession, faux Nazis feeling violated, animal stickers, unwavering sensitivity, stupid imagery, internal rhyming and Santa Claus. Also swimming through mud, looping back on oneself, eyes being gummed shut, the value of confusion, dark and disturbing worlds, begrudging awareness of the reader, not being able to fathom the logic of decision-making, writing through an idea rather than creating a story, and the steampunk weaponization of ice skates. Just before we hear from them, please rate us and comment. It's absolutely critical to how findable we are through search engine algorithms. Five stars only, of course. Okay, so let's go. This is Vanessa Morel, and I'll be your host for today's show. My guest today is multidisciplinary artist Anna Clegg. She has selected a very fragmented and emotionally intense fictional novel for us uh, to talk about. We'll go through a text that often pushes the limit of what is acceptable in literature. Then we'll end up at your studio, Anna, and to see what's going on over there. So welcome to Art Fictions. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. Uh, so you've chosen My Loose Thread. It's um, by American novelist Dennis Cooper. It was published by Canongate Books in 2002. Cooper is a novelist, poet, critic, curator and screenwriter. In an article that was written by writer Barry Pierce at another magazine, he mentioned that to read his novels is to gaze into the bleakest depths of humanity and to come out the other side feeling violated. I hope we don't come out this way after this podcast. <laughs> Make no guarantees. Yeah. So the topics that Cooper often writes about include murder, rape, uh, pedophilia, incest. It's going to be quite hardcore. Um, and uh, his experimental style has led him to win praise from different icons like uh, Kathy Acker and William Burroughs. Actually, William Burroughs is at the back of this book. He mentions, yeah. there's a mention. <clears throat> yeah, I also just learned that um, Dennis Cooper used to share a boyfriend with William Burroughs. Really? Yeah. That's so crazy. <laughs> I can't remember who the boyfriend is, but I think every like third weekend he would go to, to stay with William Burroughs for like four days in Kansas and then Dennis Cooper would just have to deal with it that's so crazy yeah I was very impressed with the list of people mentioned in the back of my loose thread uh, that mentions snippets of 
why they recommended Dennis Cooper. <laughs> it seems that the list of people was like super, super cool. Um, so the book revolves around a teenage boy named Larry. He becomes involved in a dark and disturbing world of drugs. To be honest, this world of drugs is um, very um, prominent in Cooper's life as well. In yeah. the podcast that I've heard of him, he he seems to have experimented with drugs as well. Yeah, I think he was taking a lot of psychedelics from a very young age at school. I don't, he doesn't accredit it particularly to like forming his literary style, but I can't help but think that um, in combination with all of these like extremely unusually traumatic events that he uh, went through as a kid that it's that it built this like narrative kind of preference that he has yeah today and, and before today i agree there's violence there's sexual explore exploration uh, and we will discuss all of this <laughs> um so he's the best known for um, previously to My Loose Thread to the George Miles Cycle. It's a series of five semi-autobiographical novels uh, published between 1989 and 2000s. You had a super interesting story about, uh, you know, quite dark, also in relation to Dennis Cooper's life, mm. in, in relation to that series of books. Yeah, the George Miles cycles is for sure what he's most well known for and they're kind of dedicated to and inspired by this boy George Miles that he met um, as a younger brother of a friend of his that he was in a band with I think and they were at this party and George was 12, Dennis was like 14 or 15 and George was just like having a super bad trip on acid like I think his older brother had given him a bunch of acid and then um, he was like really not dealing with it well. So then uh, his brother like sent Dennis over to look after him. And I think they just like talked all night. And then from there, uh, Dennis Cooper uh, forged a very like intense friendship with, the, with this boy, George. And I think very early on, like a week later or something, they were they were kind of cycling around the neighborhood and I don't know, getting up to uh, who knows what. And then um, George, I think, confessed his love to Dennis like uh, really early on in this kind of first week stage. And Dennis said that, you know, he was like flattered and that kind of that he loved him too, but not, not in a romantic way because he was 12. There was like the age difference was... He was 12? Two. Yeah, George was 12. I think Dennis was 15. Okay. But... I think they stayed very good friends um, since that moment. And then um, when he turned 14 or 15, George, I think, started to suffer with bipolar very, um, very badly and to detrimental effect. And I think he was kind of outcast by the rest of their friends because he was very um, kind of challenging to be around and apparently like not a great not a great time so um, everyone else was kind of prepared to give up on him but Dennis Cooper never did and then um, Dennis Cooper ended up moving to Amsterdam and staying there because he found a he I think fell in love with this guy there and then so he stayed there for a while and then started writing yeah he and was writing a lot for, ma for magazines. magazines he was writing for like art. art forum yeah and also spin magazine interview i think freeze yeah a bunch of them i think you know just just for money and then he started really focusing on these novels and he wrote the george miles cycle um and he wrote them always in dedication to to his friend thinking that one day they would reunite and talk about them and he assumed he was reading them and then 10 years, the cycle kind of took 10 years um, to write. And then at the end of it, he found out that George Miles had actually committed suicide like 10 years before. So it's really tragic. So he um, potentially he never read them. Yeah, yeah. Which is um, so sad. It is very kind of sad. Like, I guess poetic in its own way, but it's not really poetic. It's just <laughs> really sad. Oh my and um, always in his books, there's kind of they're always inhabited by teenagers and young young people and adults are kind of very much on the periphery and I mean certainly in the George Miles cycle like adults are there to abuse the teenagers I mean they're not a positive presence in those worlds at all yeah but always in the books there's one particular um boy who is like a lot younger than the rest and there's something 
there's always something quite like luminous about this one character and you do end up really caring for them and they don't always get out of it unscathed but um, there's like a real particular sensitivity to this one like younger boy that I obviously is, is George in each of these so um, novels. Potentially like coming to the chosen book for this podcast, My Loose Thread, is there a one particular boy? Is that boy Larry? Uh, and uh, it would be great to know if you could briefly introduce us to the plot, the narr what, what's happening in this story, and also why you chose the book. Mm. Well, I think t to answer your initial question, the boy with that particular presence in this book is undeniably Jim, who is um, Larry's younger brother. He's also about 13. And um, he's just this locus around which, like, these total kind of combustions of like obsession swirl and it's it's from Larry himself and from various other characters in the book like Larry's friends are obsessed with his younger brother his his best friend who he kind of killed over a or he thought um, that he killed over an altercation with his brother was obsessed with him he's like has this kind of um, <clears throat> like inhuman draw And that really is what the novel is about. So it's narrated by um, this teenage boy, Larry, who's about 15 or 16. And um, he is paid by a senior at his high school who is this kind of faux Nazi called Gilman Crow to kill um, a classmate of his who um, is also very abused. Like it's in the beginning of the book, it's outlined that he was abused by his mother and his mother like sold him as a young male prostitute to all of these men who would kind of treat him very sadistically too. And so his his will to live isn't really that present anyway, but um, Larry's paid to kill him and retrieve um, a notebook that the, this boy always carries around with him and then to give the notebook to this guy, Gilman Crow. And he does so right in the beginning of the novel. It's a really... It's a pretty, like, ferocious opening. And actually, I, I think it's kind of the the clearest moment in the whole book That's before true. it descends into this, like, spiral. I mean, the plot is about this, and it happens in, like, the first few pages. <laughs> yeah, and it's extremely <laughs> lucid compared to the rest. I mean, he just kind of... He's not happy about it, but he gets it done with, <laughs> with not that much hesitation. And so, yeah, he, he kills this this classmate of his and then with his friend and his girlfriend at the time they dispose of the body in her parents log cabin and then he retrieves the notebook and kind of starts reading this stuff uh, in the notebook that it later turns out relates to a friend of his Rand who he previously punched very hard in an argument And then um, the punch led to an aneurysm that killed his friend. And he's just totally kind of consumed with this, like, guilt um, and anger towards, towards his friend and towards his actions in the situation. Mm -hmm. And then Gilman Crow, I think, kind of changes his mind and says, actually, can you kill your best friend Pete, who is the guy that helped uh, dispose of the body in the first instance? And then the rest of the narrative kind of dissolves into this, like, browned out haze of confusion where he's just totally racked with guilt and you feel like you're kind of swimming through mud with it it's actually really hard for it to to get past this initial point because he just keeps loop looping back on himself but um at some point throughout the novel there are these revelations that actually he's kind of been acquitted of his guilt um about rand because rand's mother Well, I don't know how much to give away, actually. There's going to be... Well, this is a spoiler. Maybe just... <laughs> I guess something that's very interesting is in somewhat it is loosely related to a real-life incident. Yeah, it is. Um, with this uh, Kip Kinkel. Yeah, Kipland Kinkel, I think is his full name. And he was a very, like, early school shooter who, um, in 1994 shot both of his parents and then the next day went into school and shot um, two of his classmates and I think wounded like 25 of his classmates. And he, he was schizophrenic. Yeah, but he un was undiagnosed schizophrenic and I think he was in therapy and then his parents took him back out of therapy and he was just obviously having like these really intense like mental struggles 
And then, um, according to Dennis Cooper, he shot his parents because he couldn't deal with how like disappointed they were with him. And it's just so tragic. I listened to the um, confession video of his, and he's just sobbing the whole way through. It's yes. like because often on YouTube, I'm recommended, you know, like confession of a total like psychopathic um, teen <laughs> oh killer, God. and they're always like really disturbing because, but also kind of quite normal as well because it's a teenager kind of trying to like wriggle their way out of something they've done and be like oh no no it wasn't like that but it's like murdering someone it's not kind of you know I think I read something about Dennis when he was a young uh, kid as well that he had this incident he was cycling or something in the mountains and he found like someone was dead yeah I know that um he was very affected by this murder it was like the torture and murder of three young boys in a cabin yeah um, in the forest but, yeah that's the one. Oh yeah and that, and that I think he just found out about that through the news but then he kind of um he had gone past through that area or yeah yeah and he convinced his friend to like go camping there yeah I this is the one that I've read yeah so it's a really like uh unusual response to these kind of tragedies that you know, most people just want to avoid it for their own kind of sanity. But he really, he was like drawn to it magnetically and physically. Mm. Um, but there's something about the book, right, that you doubt whether the character is good or bad or the intentions are good or bad or yeah. of, of Larry, in, like in this book and all of the actions he takes. Yeah, totally. He's He's a narrator and a character unlike any other I've ever read because... He doesn't seem to have any any kind of overarching like desire or will to either become a good person or a bad person. He really brushes off um, school shooters because it, this is in response to like this was written in 2002 and obviously in the 90s like school shootings were so rife and kind of such a cultural moment and they had they had kind of a cultural like fan base in a way that now thankfully they don't but certainly Harrison and Klebold from um, the Columbine shootings had a real like following and that's something that Larry really rejects in the book and he thinks that Gilman Crow this like Nazi guy is a real like loser for mm. um, idolizing these individuals and he doesn't um, it's not like a goal of his to kind of um, manifest his like rage into something destructive but he's also not interested in becoming a good person either. yeah and also like it's in the point of whether he wants to survive or kill himself as well yeah exactly like he doesn't seem to want to like get through this in order to like su you know survive and live a happy life but he doesn't seem that interested in, in killing, killing himself, himself it's either. like it's just this kind of immediate like drive to to something but I I still can't figure out what it is and I think really it's just like this love for his brother is is what um what kind of pulls him through all of this confusion and that in itself is so disturbing but he really can't grapple with that either and he can't he never admits that it's wrong but he never really admits that it feel that it's right to him mm. as well he's kind of always pushing it onto other people he's like well everyone else is in love with my brother it's not actually me and like my brother's in love with me mm. and you're never sure if it's true then you start getting this quite hard evidence that his brother is kind of in love with him but it's all so subjective and he's such a liar and he lies to himself so much that it's like it's you know am I even reading this speech right like do mm. I don't even know whether this solid accounts of actual conversations and dialogue are are true or not so yeah you never you never really know and what you said about confusion it's such a big thing um in the interest of uh, dennis cooper as well mm. i i know that when he looks to art as well he says that what he most fascinates him is arts that confuses him like why was this even made it's yeah, so confusing totally uh, and that's what i like most about art too it's when you can't like fathom the decision-making process and and the logic behind something, but you you know that there is a logic and you can feel it. Yeah. But um, yeah, I know that Dennis Cooper uses internal the system of internal rhyming. He was talking about using it in um, I think his most recent novel. It's 2021 and it's called I Wished and it's more um, directly autobiographical. I think it's about George Miles actually. 
mm-hmm. but he um but I think it's like partly narrated by Santa Claus and it's partly narrated by this James Turrell sculpture, this big like crater, mm. but there's kind of a there's like this mirroring of an initial anecdote that he has about when um a friend of his like a friend of his um, kind of buried an axe into the back of his head when he was about 11 or 12 and then freaked out and left him. And then uh, apparently, like, Dennis Cooper came to after having this axe, like, accident. it was an accident, but um, he came to and then he, like, felt his own brain or something. Oh, yeah, I read that as well. Yeah, it's an anecdote yeah, that comes up quite a lot. Quite a lot, yeah. And apparently he had, like, a crush on the guy that did it as well, so it was, like, really confusing for him. <laughs> There's like a link with this James Terrell crater later in the book. And so I think he uses this, something that I would consider a very like artistic approach to writing that's like these links that aren't really representational, but more like effective. Yeah, because he does uh, speak about a moment that really changed his way of writing, Mm. which was the time that he encountered the John Baldessari work, yeah, which is this uh, work that says wrong. Dennis says it's a stupid image. yeah, (laughs) And he's like, this is such a stupid image. And it says wrong. And like, he finds it super funny. But basically, prior to that, he considered art as like a painting or, you know, a, a material or like gestures or composition or whatever. But he never thought that art could be a concept led and that made him really want to change like the way he wrote in order not to write through a narrative or a plot or a story which is definitely what this book doesn't do (laughs) but write through like an actual like idea and be like okay this is what I'm gonna do Uh, like create this mood yeah totally I think it's the well I'd like to hear more about what he thought actually on that image but I think it was like the casualness of this kind of really throwaway photograph in a gallery printed up really big apparently it's like massive and um yeah I guess maybe because his his books do feel like an image I Mm. think this one especially it's like in in what way would you would you feel it's as an image is it very visual to you it's like it's funny because you're not it's not directly visual I mean there's no there's certainly no like lush visual descriptors in it at all and you kind of hardly know where you are the whole time and it's really dialogue led I guess it's more kind of um just this constant looping back and like thinking back to the same memory it's like when you I don't know I don't know if you have this but when I have a conversation that didn't go that well I just I get so obsessed with it and it's like I also loop back on this so Mm. and then but it becomes almost like after a while it just becomes an image yeah and it's not even like going through the conversation in a linear way it's like packaged up into this like image but it's kind of it's got like a weight and a materiality to it and this idea of the loop is also very related to music in a way uh yeah for sure that's actually like why I kind of chose it for this for this session in the first place and also what kind of solidified to me that I was probably really going to enjoy it before I even opened it was this um, review on the back from um, Toby Litt in The Independent on Sunday and Toby wrote it's almost more like music than reading a prose that is not in any way poetic but operates to a unique rhythm it's just I mean like that's kind of about as concise as you can get on the novel but I really like music that um breaks down and like uh, re-loops back on itself and references itself and it's a real stylistic thing at the moment in like SoundCloud rap that um, they do all of these like meta edits where the producer will like export the whole the whole song and then kind of like rewind it and play it again at a different speed and it's like it can never quite get going to its completion before it loops back on itself in the beginning and so again it's kind of like you start like forming this image from like the motion blur of it mm. um and that's how and also it's like when a song gets stuck in your head you're meant to listen y- to the end keep, of it and you keep like uh singing it and singing it singing it yeah totally head. but often it's just one bar that loops round and round because you never get like a whole four minute song stuck in your head or something it's always just one bar yeah i wonder over. if anyone ever gets like johnny cash songs stuck in their head where it's like a whole story or whether it's just of more like contemporary songwriting where it's just 
like a notion. Mm. I imagine it's the latter. I don't know. Yeah. So basically, apart from being like a very visual for you, like, sorry, like a painting, as you mentioned, mm. you also feel it's very related to music mm. and also to film. Yeah. <laughs> this is quite interesting that it has all of these qualities. Uh, like, in what way would you find this filmic? Well, this book? I mean, I guess like any novel... It's, e it's easier to imagine it as a film and I, I imagine most people when they read a novel have some kind of like cinematic, like vague cinematic interpretation of situating the words you're reading into an image that moves through time with the narrative. But I don't know if making it into a, into a movie would ruin it because I kind of like that you can't tell where you are exactly at any one point. I just read that um, it's based in LA and I had never even thought to like situate it in a city. And then kind of thinking of like this specific architecture of LA kind of freaked me out because I <laughs> liked the idea that it could be like anywhere in America. But yeah. LA makes sense too. But uh, well, I kind of like films where not a lot happens and they're kind of quite like bodily and gestural like I really like Claire Denis um, mm. filmography and so which takes you through the narrative in this like effective string of bodily gesture and image and so I guess if it were to be made into a movie I would kind of I would like it to be one like that but mm. the, the ironic thing is that it's like all dialogue actually so you know I don't know how that would translate into a into a movie but um, but there is this quote which you mentioned about Vivian Sobchak yeah uh, that related a lot with this idea of film totally. and um, in this talk for UCLA she talks about Joseph Cornell and links it with old quick time movies and you related that somewhat to this book as well yeah yeah it's kind of a funny talk that she did it was in I think that talk was in 2002 as well maybe it was 2001 2001 oh right so the year before this and Joseph Cornell, if you look at his work, it looks really kind of like uh, 2012, something you'd see in like a homeware store. It's like these little Victorian um, cabinets that are full of kind of like quite quaint, like postcards and stuff, like collections of stuff. But she was uh, linking it to quick time movies, which at the time didn't have the same cap capabilities as they do now. They were more like kind of GIF rendering softwares. And so you'd have these like very um, like low frame kind of animations that were flat images that moved against each other as opposed to this kind of depth of like the field of the camera. And I wasn't particularly interested in the QuickTime videos or the art that she was talking about, but she had a really great way of, like, talking about it. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, she described QuickTime movies as the selected and static fragments of a read-only memory that paradoxically evokes memory as random access. Both QuickTime movies and Cornell boxes also do not open out onto worldly horizons of space and time. And like big screen live action movies, they draw down and into their own discreet, closed and nested poetic worlds. Worlds recollected and remembered, more miniature, intensive, layered and vertically deep than those constructed through the extensive horizontal scope and horizontal vision of cinema. And then, yeah, she goes on to say, both salvage the flotsam and jetsam of daily life and redeem it as used material whose recollected and remembered presence echoes with bits and traces that's bits as in kind of like bits of information of an individual yet collective past. And yeah, kind of just, I really liked this idea of opening not horizontally onto a plane, but kind of down, back down into something. And um, that's kind of what, what this what book, the book is. is. Like, it's kind of like your eyes being like gummed shut. It's all about memory as well. Yeah, exactly. And the, how malleable that is. Yeah. Um, Basically, like, would you say the main themes uh, identifiable in the book are like confusion, memory, controversy in some way, or yeah, which totally, and obsession. Obsession. Um, I know that's one that we discussed. Yeah, I mean, the whole like reality is skewed by these these kind of constructed 
factors that then actually change like the world around this character and they change it for you as well mm. um, which is something I found really interesting and then you mentioned something prior to me that it was like that you felt the book was also about language And you know how we were talking about uh, Roland Barthes, I think it was, and all of these different types of narrators? Yeah. He has this essay called An Introduction to the Structural Analysis of Narrative. So he talks about, like, whilst the narrator may not address the reader directly through the use of you, they will give signs not necessarily of their awareness to the reader, but of the reading act itself. Yeah, he says, for example, when a narrator stops representing in order to state a fact that they obviously already know, but would be unbeknownst to the reader without this offering, it serves as a wink to the wise through the suspension of the meaningful dimension. So I guess it's taking, it's kind of taking uh, the book out of itself to help the reader along, which is like this um, begrudging kind of awareness and recognition of a reader on the other side of this like portal mm. and he lists three main conceptions of the giver of narrative um, the first being a person which is someone who is like knowingly narrating it in in real time and it's something in the past that then they're um, writing back and you kind of know that they're like writing it and he says yeah to whom the narrative exists independently Uh, as they must stop their actions in order to pick up a pen and write about them. I think, like, Paul Orsto has this kind of narrative. You always know that mm. it's it's a person narrating it, and you, and usually it's kind of him. Mm. Um, the second sees a narrator as an omnipresent, apparently impersonal consciousness that tells a story from an all-encompassing view um, and exists simultaneously inside and outside his characters, which is kind of... Like, yeah, really, really common. Like, I remember when I was a kid reading Harry Potter that that was the first time that occurred to me. And I was like, how am I, how can I get to, like, know what's happening inside all of the characters' heads at once? Yeah. Um, and then the third and most recent type of narration giver must limit his story to what the characters can observe or know. And this is surely the category that this book falls into. And I think that Dennis Cooper has, like... A really exciting way of um, pushing this to the extremes of um, perception and limited perception. Is it the first time you read something in this type of narration? Uh, it's definitely not the first time I've read something in like first person, like mm. subjective narration. But I've never read it to this like to extent. this extent. Yeah, and I know that um, you know at the beginning I said. <laughs> This is quite a controversial kind of book that we're tapping into. Of course, it has all of these like elements of violence and controversy is such a big thing, particularly within this author. Mm. I know he received like death threats. And yeah. I know that he has been mislabeled as sadistic or... Yeah, it's funny because it kind of... The content of his work is undeniably sadistic and it's... I mean, I don't even know if I've been that explicit, but in this book, there's like a sexual incestuous relationship between the narrator and his younger brother. Um, they're both underage. It's really uncomfortable. And um, he kills another person <laughs> and chops him up and burns him. So mm. it's like really, there's a lot of really kind of awful. But, like, but it's not done acts. in a, like, di like it's disturbing, but at the same time, you're not afraid of it. Yeah, totally. It is there is a sensitivity mm -hmm. that's totally like unwavering. And there's a there's a belief and kind of respect for the autonomy of all of these characters. In the autonomy mean, of teenagers. Yeah. That I think means it never feels like too much to handle because it's not without emotional consequence, even if that's like dealt with in a more nonchalant way that you than you might expect. Mm. It's not like um you're reading this for, like, uh, the pleasure of shock. Like, I don't really like Brett Easton Ellis that much because um, he's also got this, like, nonchalance around, like, violence and sexual violence. But I don't know, it's just kind of disgusting and annoying and all of these characters are so abhorrent, but there's, like, a pride in it. But in Dennis Cooper, there's, there's not, like, a pride in um, being an abhorrent person. It comes with, like, pain and regret too. And he also, Dennis Cooper is always asserting too that his books reside in the realm of fantasy. 
I'm not sure how much I believe they're like totally in the realm of imagination, but it's also not real. And he's not advocating for it to be something real. It's just mm -hmm. something that, it, you know, in these pages is happening. I guess before we move to your own artist practice, I really want to know how you came across this book. Like, who recommended it to you? Uh, it was recommended to me by um, my tutor, David Musgrave. He taught me in third year. And then, At Chelsea. Yeah. I had just seen the film Bully, the Larry Clark film Bully. I actually just found out that Larry Clark refused to have an article written on him by Dennis Cooper because he thought Dennis Cooper was going to, like, out him as gay. Really? <laughs> But, uh, and Dennis Cooper said, it, you know, I would never have done that. But I thought that was kind of interesting because you'd think that Larry Clark is, like, unafraid of anyone. Mm. But anyway, I was just talking about this movie and it really um, affected me because it was, like, this kind of... <laughs> like almost erotic frenzy of like um, kind of like social encouragement of um, evil that then doesn't make it through the other side and once they it's about a group of friends that kill one of their friends because um, because he's like a bad person and they all egg each other on to do it and then um, once they do it they all like of course it reality crashes down on them they all blame each other mm -hmm. um, but I think we were just talking about that and I thought, at the t in my memory at the time, he said that it was based on a Dennis Cooper novel. But then it, it was, wasn't. Yeah, but then we were researching it and it's totally not. So, <laughs> so it, it must was, have just been me misremembering But there's that. something quite nice about this misunderstanding as well. Yeah, exactly. Because it's all about that. Yeah. Mm, um, and I know you have a very like direct relation with uh, your tutor who recommended this book. You were part of a show that he curated at Green Grassy. Yeah, and he, he was in it too. So what what did you do for that show? Um, for that show, it was a collaboration between four of us. So it was um, it was David Musgrave, Beatrice Forster, Elliot Jeffries, and myself. And um, he had a sh he had kind of a, a show scheduled um, that happened to be in line with the release of his um, novel Lambda, that was coming out at the time. I think it was like March last year. And then he invited the three of us to. Um, do a show together that was kind of about about that novel and also about music because we'd all like forged this friendship over lockdown about music yeah and you make your own music and you uh, write as well or produce uh or I not? like produce my I used to produce a lot of music for myself I haven't done it in the past year or so but I'm trying to get back into it um and i'm in a band but in a i, band I just play well. the bass for the band i don't write it but the the two guys that write it are really good <laughs> um, so i didn't actually even really so play you were the bass. all linked uh, through music and through yeah. the novel yeah and then we made this show that was that was about the novel and soundcloud mm. and so we made um basically like a really long form audio track i think it was eight hours long that came out of a multi-output speaker system And then, uh, yeah, we put them all on these, like, plinths made of archive boxes. And we printed a lot of custom stickers and had them going around this, like, watermark um, in the gallery space. And then we invited um, other artists and musicians to kind of, like, interrupt the, the programming of the show. It was cool. It was pretty cool. And it's so cool that you mentioned you made uh, this work about stickers I know you had a work in your degree show at Chelsea as well which was made through stickers yeah from these cute little animals yeah it was actually the show just before the degree show that was meant to be like a practice run and then COVID hit so actually it, it did end up being the last show I ever did there mm. but um yeah that was just like I'd made this sticker sheet that was um based on Uh, an actual sticker sheet that I'd bought in Estonia the year before. Um, there was, like, these really super cute, like, animal stickers for kids. Um, and then I photographed them from really far away on my phone and then re-photographed that on my laptop screen and then had it reprinted professionally as, like, another sticker sheet of these really degraded, kind of, like, battered-up animals. animals. And then, um, yeah, I just stuck them to the floor and, like, nail. I put, like, nails through them. <laughs> There's the something a bit violent about that as well. And in the actual stickers, you can see, like, the flash, like, yeah. of the 
uh, degrading of it through the various processes that they went through Mm. from sticker to sticker but they went through all of these stages yeah totally I was just really interested in this process of like removal and kind of like um loving something so much that you you have to preserve it but in that like uh you degrade it and actually recently I've been seeing this thing it's like this tumblr post that keeps popping up over and over again like being reposted on Instagram called um too much love and it's just these um stuffed animals it's like before and after when they're new and then when they've been like really um just like trawled around by some kid and they look so like beaten up and abused (laughs) And so, yeah, it's kind of a work about being obsessed with something, but but not wanting to touch it either. I couldn't, I could never. Because like you that. never used the original stickers. Yeah, they're still in their packet, in a, in a <laughs> folder. <laughs> it's so crazy how, like, this idea of preservation yeah. as well. And as a kid, I could never, I don't think I could ever, like, stick stickers anywhere. I have, like, a bunch of um, full sheets left. I loved them. <laughs> it was the idea of like splitting up this group and then once you stick it somewhere, you can't. You can't unstick it. Yeah, it's always like I prefer to live with the potential than I do. Um, Use it. Yeah, the, the regret of a, a mistake. <laughs> That's so it's not a good way to live, actually, <laughs> as it turns out. <laughs> and I know Dennis Cooper curated uh, shows as well. And yeah. that, I, that I was so fascinated because I had no idea like that he was so into the contemporary art scene. Yeah. He was also a tutor at UCLA and yeah. he had all of these students that became hu- very influential artists yeah. uh, as well. And in one of the shows, yeah, he taught them all. (laughs) Yeah, he taught them. And in one of the um, shows that he curated, uh, he also included a work by Vincent Fotu. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his surname well. I probably can't. I think it's Fecto. Fecto. And that work was made of stickers as well. Yeah, because actually that was when David first um, told me about him, but the name totally passed me by. Because when I was um, installing that, he was like, oh, did you ever see this show Smallish at Green Grassy? It was when it was still in Fitzrovia in like 2000 and 2001, I think. And your show was at uh, Green Grassy as well. Yeah. So that's such a... You've exhibited in the same place. Yeah, yeah. Where Cooper had his show. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's pretty cool, actually. Um, but it's such a great show and it was... That also has really dark elements and kind of very like explicitly... Um, perverse elements especially from Dennis Cooper himself but then there's this moment of like release from Vincent Fecteau where he just has this really beautiful um, cloud of stickers in the corner at kind of um, I think just lower than head height and um, there's only two images online so I can't actually see what the stickers are but they seem to just be kind of like dots like you know um, like sail dot stickers Mm. it's so beautiful spoken a little bit about your work but I would like to introduce you as a more formally about your work so you're a London-based artist and you make paintings drawings writing and sound uh, we already know that you graduated from Chelsea in 2020 actually what a year to graduate from <laughs> like in the, uh, I'm sure that must have had an effect as well in in your practice and you've exhibited at venues like Fold the Music Venue, mm-hmm. uh, Split Gallery, Set Nicoletti and Green Grassy. So the works that you make, um, you're interested in uh, creating metaphorical alternatives to everyday emotions uh, as experienced through the image. Um, isolating and resampling tropes, cliches and choreographies from the mainstream cinema and music, you create visual systems of stand-ins. This is done through compiling and degrading found and recorded imagery into ambivalent compositions. <laughs> I mean, the language used in this bio is so... Um, we have used some of these words already, like degrading, <laughs> yeah. when we were talking about Dennis Cooper, or like uh, ambivalence, like this complex. Um, and um, I really want to know about this thing that you put in your bio about creating visual si- systems of stand-ins mm. because I know that you work with all of these mediums um, and how do you f- see them as stand-ins uh, I guess it's other things? Yeah, right? I suppose they're just stand-ins in that they're kind of these like indirect 
reflections of like already constructed imagery or whether it's imagery or like some kind of written origin point but the kind of origins that are already um not from like real immediate embodied life but um from a kind of um like re-rendered version of that that might be like a film or a song which also exist in the real world and they're written by human beings so so it it is just something actually that exists in the world as in the same way as everything else but it's like this concentrated way of experiencing life that's condensed into like three minutes or two hours um and kind of seeks to have like an emotionally manipulative effect and then um i just try and take these instances of like distilled and like a uh, concentrated emotion and then reflect it and refract it again um into something like less direct and more like a self-reflexive kind of observation of of the experience of these it's it's not directly about like um music and movies it's about like the experience of of ingesting them mm. and then that's turned into like a new object because you mentioned that your paintings are writings your writings are music yeah. your music is sculpture like yeah like totally. in what way is one thing the other thing i think i just have like <laughs> commitment issues <laughs> but yeah it's usually things start from Well, yeah, in in one sense, things often start from another medium and then they kind of switch halfway through into a, into a different medium. But also it's, I can't really ever think of like painting through the lens of painting. It will be like trying to make it look like a photograph, but maybe like feel like the memory of reading a, reading a book. And then the photographs have kind of a, like often have like a painterly quality to them and then the writing is the writing is often like a painting like in my writing it's like a situation that doesn't really have a beginning or end it's just that comes from like uh a memory and quite often those writings stem from like photographs so um it's just trying to build some kind of like passage through time around a photograph but it's but it only ever surrounds it it doesn't really like extend extend it and then the sound is like yeah a kind of painterly too i suppose it's like an evading of um like structural commitment that one could be constantly um translated into something else so they're all kind of like these like refracted um fragmentary elements that orbit this like one unknown origin point that i guess is like the absence of memory or something There's um a book by Victor Bergen called um mm-hmm. The Remembered Film. In the first chapters of that he kind of talks about this like mode of viewing a film where actually watching it you ingest it through like all of the promotional material so like the posters and film stills mm-hmm. and the soundtrack and reviews and stuff and you can you've kind of watched it already but so you have a memory of it but actually it's not rooted in what the film is but because mm. the film is like a recorded memory itself it's like the same thing mm. um which i really like that's really interesting so uh, apart from like your work being very fragmented and diffused is there like something that kind of unites everything together i think yeah that there's this general like inquiry into into memory and desire and like a constru- a reconstruction of reality that is present in all of it and the vehicles for for exploring that do change and the mediums change but i think it's like something so kind of it's so general and so inherent in it and kind of you can relate that desire into anything i think so that's probably what what brings it all together but it definitely fluctuates in how like direct and embodied it is. Mm. Because I know that you're going to exhibit in a show, but it's a show I've cura- I'm curating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I know you- that you're part of it. <laughs> but uh, it's called Half Truths, so it relates a lot to this idea of reality and lies and memory and perception. 
and for the first half of Half Truths, you've got this incredible painting of this kind of Brooke Shields image, <laughs> and it's not about Brooke Shields at all. Um, yeah, that that is the one that's going to be shown in the first half, and it's two um, pieces of paper like falling through the wind against this um, fairly nondescript, dusky background of, um, yeah, the actress Brooke Shields. The whole time I was painting it, I thought it was Jennifer Connolly. Um, so when I revisited the source material and found out it was Brooke Shields, I was, I was pretty disappointed. And also felt a little strange about it because obviously this documentary has just come out that has just been released um, where it, it, she kind of... Um, reveals that you know she was abused too as a teenager so it's actually it's a bit but I, I hope that that darkness doesn't really come into it so much but um I mean in the in the image you've created like the painting you've created she's smiling yeah she's smiling but it's in this kind of pained way that's why that's what brought me to the image over and over again I found it in a self-help book for teen girls by um Bobby Brown um, because my my mom had just bought me some Bobby Brown makeup for Christmas, and it really like touched me for some reason. I was really like uh, I don't know. So I, it was. I weird. don't think That's, I've ever seen you wear makeup. Yeah, I don't really ever. <laughs> I don't really ever wear it. But um, and I used to have like issues with wearing it and stuff. So it it felt like on a personal level, this kind of. I don't know, a step forward that I wasn't like too self-conscious to wear makeup or whatever. But then I was thinking about it. And so I just Googled like Bobby Brown on the Internet Archive. And then this self-help book came up and um, it had like an anecdote from Brooke Shields being like, you know, I'm not always confident in how I look. And a lot of people say that I'm like the pr prettiest girl in the world. <laughs> but I'm still, it doesn't feel like that all the time. And then the photo they ch they chose to go with it, it's just where she has this really kind of like deer in the headlights, self-conscious smile. And it was so sad um, that I became obsessed with this image. And then, um, yeah, I wanted to, originally the... I wanted to kind of animate the image as if they were two, like, um, bodies that were kind of dancing. But uh, against a white background, it looked really weird and not, not how I thought it would. So then I, I situated it in this kind of outside space. Um, but, yeah, it's kind of about, like... With that one in particular, it's, like, it's not a window into this, like, room with Brooke Shields in it. Um, it's, like, quite obviously... It's a piece of paper that someone has printed out multiple times um, with this, you know, young celebrity's face on it. I, it's it's creepy and obsessive. And I, you know, in like um, Hollywood films and children's films, especially, there are these moments where someone has like a really important document and then the wind blows it out of their yeah, hands. Yeah, suddenly it, because it's, this image is just blow, it's just falling down. Yeah, it's totally like autonomous. Yeah, I really wanted these images to be like free in, in the wind. And like <laughs> recently someone came to see the painting as we were hanging it on mm. site and they were like, is this a photograph stuck on a painting? Oh yeah, it's very flattering. Because <laughs> it felt, because you feel it's falling. Yeah. And there's something about not being able to access Brooke Shields or, or this image. Yeah, right? totally. I, I kind of hope there is like a, um, like a removal and an indirectness that kind of protects the image. Because I think it would be a different thing to just, to just paint that like directly as a, as a framed, um, reappropriated image feels mm. like it would come across really differently to having it... Um, as these like objects that have their own like material presence within within the scene. But yeah, it's not about Brooke Shields, you know, it's about like the act of like consuming an image of, of a celebrity. Mm. And I know that throughout this podcast it, you've tapped into a lot into this SoundCloud uh, music, uh, yeah. which it's very linked to your work because you also make portraits of these SoundCloud rap boys. Um, yeah, I've been doing that. Actually, I was thinking about it. I've been doing that since I started Chelsea, like painting rappers, but it, it used to be different stylistically. And it's something I'm feeling a bit self-conscious about at the moment because a friend of mine had a show in New York and it got reviewed by this guy who runs a very kind of scathing review platform called the Manhattan Art Review. 
and he described the show as like two terminally online losers that still think SoundCloud rap is relevant in 2023. <laughs> and I just saw this review and was like, oh my God, I think he's wrong. Like my friend is a really good artist and the show was really good. But, but um, maybe like why is SoundCloud rap relevant for you? I think it's like this really interesting like cultural phenomenon like cultural and political phenomenon in like an age of kind of self-started like branding and also like the opportunity to self-start your career as a creative it's obviously with the internet and social media it's so different and post 2020 social media is so different to how it used to be and just like the word brand it's so in like everyday vocabulary now and I'm sure it didn't used to be like Mm. you hear brand like every day Mm. um and as a normal person you can like work with brands it's it's weird but um this particular um cultural phenomena of SoundCloud rap I think really goes against this um like streamlining of the self and and one's creative output into something like brandable that can be worked with by companies for like mutual gain because it's so like it's almost like noise music at this point it's like these the way that these producers are working is like um just like obscuring things back into something really like avant-garde actually mm. sonically so that's interesting and and also it's like um all of these young boys that are, I guess that's kind of like Cooperian in a way. It's like, it is this These community teenagers. of like, yeah, young teenage like stars, like self-affirmed stars. Uh, and they kind of obsess over each other and you kind of obsess over them as a scene. But they there's a, this like bravado and autonomy to them that I find really similar to like Dennis Cooper's characters. They're not uh, immune to like harm as well. And the way that you portray them as well, I I think it's really beautiful because they're in that moment between that they're looking at the camera and they're not looking at the same time. Yeah, yeah, totally. So it's like like they're hiding in a way from their own bravado. It's this really weird kind of like choreography that's developed between all of them. You get it too in like mainstream rap, but mainstream rap is like a lot more direct. I always actually think that cloud rap is mainstream rap and then when I listen to like actual mainstream rap like Ennerly Chopper and stuff it's like so it is like so um aggressive and like actually they don't do this thing where they turn ra- away from the camera so it is something specific to like and the sound you also theme. like obscure the image a lot in the way that their faces are not visible yeah I guess that's just to kind of make it more about the gesture than it is their individual like recognizable faces i think i think if it's like obvious that it's like xavier so based or something that it becomes kind of like um then it becomes something to some people that know who he is and then something else to people who don't so i don't really like that i i like being able to like rely on like a universal understanding so sometimes if that means like taking information away from something i'll do it so um to kind of unite an understanding I want it to be about like the gesture to it to everyone. So, but there is an exploration of being a fan of these people. Yeah, again, it's like the role of being a fan and kind of the shame of being a fan too. It's it's really embarrassing. It's embarrassing as a teenager, but it's even more embarrassing as an adult. And I'm still like particularly being a fan of these young kids. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like uh, it's weird for sure, and also it's being a fan is so historically linked to like the feminine as well and also like even though it's not directly linked to sexuality I think like um it's it comes into it mm. there's this Hervé um Hervé Giver quotation well it's not a quotation it's like a passage that he has in Ghost Image which is a book that's like a bunch of essays about photography and memory and um it's this anecdote from when he was a kid his dad took him to the cinema and then I think one of the employees at the cinema gave him like a promotional, a very small promotional image of Terence Stamp mm. from the film that they'd gone to see and it was like all doodled on and really like battered up and then um, Avigibe put it like underneath the glass of this like glass covering of a coffee table that was in his room 
And then like every night he would like kiss this image from under the glass. And there was like a spider that had been drawn on Terence Stamp's um, face. And then at the end of the anecdote, he says that he, he would like make space in his bed for this like imaginary version of um, Terence Stamp that would just like <laughs> accompany him throughout the night. It was so sweet. And this kind of, um, yeah, willing submission to like live your life through glass and like kiss an idol through glass is mm. something that I really like. Mm. Do you follow any of the rituals in that way? At your studio? Uh, I have no glass coffee table. Okay. But I don't really have any rituals in my studio. I find it really hard to um, stick to a routine. I guess it would be cool um, before we end the podcast to know kind of like what you're working on, like the most newest work that you're doing at the moment. I know that you had a lot of drawings. Uh, yeah, I was doing a lot of drawings and probably I'll continue doing those. I just lost my studio. And it looks like probably I, c I won't be able to get a new one for another couple of months. So um, right now I'm making like bedroom bedroom work. So yeah, it's going to be a lot of drawings. Those, I think maybe the ones you're referencing, are they the cameras? The camera ones. They're like really laborious and I hate doing them so really? much. They're just so boring because it's like <laughs> drawing each individual like ridge on a... I just Let love how threatening they are because these cameras are drawn. Is it pencil? Yeah, it's just it's pencil. It's just pencil. It's like mechanical pencil. And they kind of feel like weapons. Yeah, they do feel really aggressive. They kind of also, um, they look like leather. Yeah. So there's something a bit like um, Tom of Finland about yeah. them. Like they become kind of these like really tightly clothed bodies. And the tripods are really masculine somehow as well they they do become quite anthropomorphic mm. um yeah i'm not sure what how i would show those but i'm going to continue with them i've been doing a lot of more like uh, looser drawings as well also kind of still lives interesting like ice skates and cogs and stuff oh yeah <laughs> I, d i had no idea about what the relation between ice skates and cogs was. yeah i was hoping you I would had just... to google what that was <laughs> yeah it was like a mechanical thing yeah <laughs> How did you get into that? I don't know. It was just this image that kept kind of coming up to me mentally over and over again of like this ice skate that has like cogs integrated into it. It's like a useless kind of semi like weaponry like element to them that don't really enhance the performance, but kind of could be used to like, I don't know, like snag snag or like hurt people when you're skating so it's like this diy like steampunk kind of weaponization of ice skates which are already a weapon because they've got a big blade they've on got them. that blade yeah yeah well we're very excited to see how you would use it uh, soon <laughs> yeah, I, i guess i'm interested uh, as a last question to know uh, what else do you have in your bookshelf at the moment are you reading any other books Um, I have like a big um, shopping cart actually of books that I'm I'm about to buy. But at the moment I'm reading um, *Leave Society* by Tao Lin, which is stylistically about as far removed as you could get from *My Loose Thread*. Um, but actually, it has like uh, this kind of the same anxieties. It's just like an updated version. I think with all the like the kind of like emotional like fury of the 90s and early noughties this is like a very kind of restrained and anxious like uh anger that's brewing in like the in the 2020s because there is a 90s nihilism in the cooper version yeah totally yeah. that you know hasn't aged that well i think a lot of stuff in the 90s hasn't aged that well mm. but this is kind of a it's more of like uh, a frustration that's like developing in a society where you supposedly can freely represent yourself and you have like access to all the information in the world and it's I'm not very far through but um it just seems to be about this guy's like really intense health anxieties actually I was thinking maybe Noor would like this novel <laughs> <laughs> Noor al Saleh yeah <laughs> You know what? It was so interesting. I was also thinking about Noor for art fictions. Really? Uh, but then uh, Noor kind of creates this fictionalized world. Mm. But, well, from my sense that I got, doesn't read that much fiction. Oh, yeah. It's That's more like the fiction. Really the like fiction is fiction. in the world that she creates. Yeah. As oh, paintings. Right. But I'm not sure if this is true. So Noor corrects me. <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to 
Thank you so much. Oh, thank the, you. Yeah, to Anna and to all the listeners for being on Art Fictions. Thank you, listeners, and also thanks to today's wonderful guest, Anna Clegg, and our lovely host, Vanessa Murrell. A huge thanks to those who've already contributed to the production of this program via patreon.com slash artfictionspodcast. If you haven't already, do so. Oh, I meant to say please do so. It's a small ask and it makes a big difference. You can also contact us by email artfictionspodcast at gmail.com and follow artfictionspodcast on Instagram. Credits for this abridged podcast are Griffin Knipe for the delightful music, Laurie E. Allen for the wise advising on production, and Beryl Productions for our jolly logo. Happy listening, reading, seeing and making. Till next time.